Place for Film, the official IU Cinema podcast. My name is David Carter, and I'd like to wish you a happy new year. It's great to be back. Sorry for the extended hiatus. I had to decide if I wanted to try to cram a Christmas episode and a Matrix Resurrections review episode into the feed during the holiday, but I opted instead to take some R&R, and it still wasn't enough R&R, if you ask me. But I decided to just take a little break for the holiday. Everyone was probably overwhelmed with options to keep themselves entertained between seeing family going to the movies right before a certain virus spikes happened. And so I figured a break from the feed would be nice. But if you were looking for more uh, projects to delve into that I am tangentially related to audio-wise, because you just need more, uh, I actually did just finish my tenure working on a project with former Black Film Center Archive Director Dr. Terry Francis. Uh, We did a project together called Frame by Frame, where she interviewed filmmakers and scholars about the movies and what moves them, and I was lucky enough to serve as producer and editor and creative partner on that with her, and it was a delight, and it is a five-episode miniseries that I spent, you know, not actually a year on, but spent quite some time on over the course of a year. So you can go check that out at various feeds with the Black Film Center archive branding on it. But yes, it is called Frame by Frame. Sadly, there are at least two podcasts, other podcasts called Frame by Frame, one of which is also a King Crimson podcast, which I haven't listened to yet. But as a King Crimson fan, I find that very amusing. But as of this recording, I just published the episode with uh, Numa Perrier, which was a collaborative edit between uh, me and Biona Weatherly. So please go and check that out. We had a blast making this project. Um, I think it's a nice little time capsule of the before times because these are interviews from like late 2018 all the way up until early 2020. Those are great. I think those are vital and valuable pieces of audio. And like I said, it was great working on them and getting to have a little creative say as to the soundscapes I got to create and all that great stuff. But once again, you can go find that podcast on the Black Film Center archive feeds on pretty much anywhere where podcasts are found. And once again, it's called Frame by Frame. Uh, I'll even post a link in the episode description if you are interested. But this episode is not about that. Here at A Place for Film, as I try to do every year or every iteration of this podcast, we're going to try some things a little different this year. And so for this inaugural 2022 episode, we are going to start highlighting specific series at the Ice Cinema. Usually on this podcast, we tend to highlight a film or the entire semester. And then this time, we're going to try highlighting some series. And we're going to start with a personal favorite series of mine that has undergone an evolution and an evolution that ties back into my thesis statement of this phenomenon that is sadly gone by the wayside, but I will be talking about the history of Midnight Movies this episode. So before we get to that and you listen to me ramble on and on and on with notes from research I did over the last like couple of weeks because it was an excuse to read Jay Hoberman's Midnight Movies for the third time, (laughs) you will be subjected to (laughs) the upcoming schedule at the IU Cinema. So join me there.
AIE Cinema for the week of January 10th, our inaugural spring semester screening. We have Vladimir Johansson's 2021 film, Lamb. This will be playing on Thursday, January 13th at 7 p.m. This is part of our International Art House series, which I will also be highlighting next episode. Johansson has come out and said that he wouldn't describe this film as a horror film. And I would agree as someone who has seen it, I would say this is probably closer to something of a folktale. I say it even kind of reminds me of uh, Jan Schmackmeyer's Little Otik, where while there are horror elements to the story, it's more a folktale about two parents adopting a child they don't fully understand or grasp and like how that ties into their anxieties of parenthood and their own personal relationship hangups. I don't want to give much about the movie away, but the way it unfurls, I would say go in and expecting something a little weirder than just a straight ahead horror movie about, uh, well, if you want to go in completely blind, I won't even say what's kind of revealed in the trailer, but yes, go in expecting something that's just a little stranger than a straight ahead horror movie about parents adopting something they don't completely understand. But if you are interested in seeing that, that is actually playing two dates. That is playing Thursday, January 13th and Friday, January 14th. As with all the precautions needing to be taken at the IU Cinema this semester, masks are required for all attendees and cinema staff at indoor events. Due to our limited screening schedule and currently reduced seating capacity, we strongly encourage patrons to buy tickets online in advance to avoid getting sold out, as there is no standby or late seating. But yes, both days at 7 p.m. as part of our International Art House series, it is rated R. As of this episode, tickets should have already gone on sale for it. So please go and check that out. And then finally, for the week of January 10th, Friday, January 14th, we have the cult hit and the first part of our Not Quite Midnight series. And so I won't belabor what this movie is about because I'll get to that later in the episode. But we have the 2009 film by Karen Kusama starring Megan Fox. Jennifer's Body. Same rules apply. That one is $4 and also Lamb is $4. So you can get those tickets online and I would behoove you to do so. As I said, they, things could sell out and there is no standby line. We are at reduced capacity. That has been the schedule for the IE Cinema. So if you wouldn't mind, please join me in my main topic, which is the history of the Midnight Movie. Absolutely adore Midnight Movies. This is a bittersweet episode for me to record because largely I would say it's something that has disappeared. But before we get to, as to the reasons as to why it has disappeared and maybe fallen by the wayside, I would just like to say my personal history with Midnight Movies is that I would go see wide release films that would come out at midnight. I would say this was a very common thing for me to do between the mid-aughts up until, and we'll get to the reason why, this is probably close to the end date of the uh, mainstream midnight movie, till about 2013, 
2014, I would say, is probably the last wide release theatrical midnight movie I ever went to. And I had never gone to any like of the, you know, culty midnight movies that I'm going to get into with this episode until the opening at the IU Cinema when they introduced this midnight movie series. Me and my friends were ecstatic about it. We'd go to it, you know, it would usually play on Fridays and Saturdays. It was where we like cut our teeth on viewing things, uh, the strange, the transgressive. Me as a nice Midwesterner uh, wasn't so used to watching in a theater with other people. I would watch these movies with my friends in their houses and in my own free time on my tiny laptop. But having that communal experience with a bunch of other people, that was something the IU Cinema brought to me. So how do we get here? How do we get to the IU Cinema screening midnight movies? Is this you know, revered thing that people would be excited about and we'd stay up way too late and (laughs) go to Denny's or IHOP or Steak and Shake afterwards after you just uh, watched a (laughs) 90-minute film by a Chilean art house huckster. Well, the history of the Midnight movie is interesting because there's no exact pinpointing movie or event or thing. From my research, what I have found is that the Midnight movie in its earliest form, started probably sometime in the 1930s where exploitation films would tour around the country as part of like roadshow exhibitions, generally in neighborhoods with large minority populations. The films themselves were cheap, exploitation films tend to be. But the idea of the Midnight Movie probably started catching more steam uh, because of television, this forever evolving and symbiotic relationship between film and television that we more or less don't like to admit exists, but television, they would screen, the FCC regulations did not apply to things screened after a certain point in the night. And so television stations would take all these like cheap B, C, D uh, horror films, and they would just plop them on where there wasn't as much censorship. They kind of show whatever they want. And that's where we get the rise of the midnight movie character, the horror host, if you will. This is where Vampira comes from. And then later, about a quarter century later, you have Elvira, who's kind of biting off of that. And Morgus the Magnificent and just these people who would introduce these films in a very tongue-in-cheek way. Lots of bits, lots of gimmicks, lots of gags, lots of jokes. They're in on the joke. They're dressing up for the occasion. And that's why people have such like a reverence for things like the Crypt Keeper or... Even, I would say, uh, Mystery Science Theater feels like a natural evolution of this, so taking something that's cheap, making fun of it, but also kind of revering it. That is kind of the genesis of where the Midnight movie begins. But then, in the 1960s, there's a couple of other things. There is uh, a smaller development in Dallas, Texas, where the Inwood Theater begins playing midnight movies for teenagers. And this is the 1960s. There's no like hard drugs going around. There's no pornography being exchanged. Essentially an excuse for young people to hang out way too late at night in a place that probably their parents are like, oh, well, it's a movie theater. So what trouble can they get into? And it's probably where they'd like make out (laughs) and hook up and, uh, you know, maybe smoke and drink beer and things like that. But there's also the stream of the art house contingent of things coming into it. The L.A. Cinema Theater with the owner Mike Getz. He had hits playing films by people like Kenneth Anger, Jack Smith, and Andy Warhol. They would get packages of these kind of 
experimental underground art films and then just like run them as a part of series that, you know, audiences would come into and watch. It was a countercultural audience, obviously watching these things. It allowed them to get high before screening, probably during screenings, mingle with the other freaks and get into that mindset of seeing something that was like far out and pretty transgressive and Art Nouveau, things that appealed to the youth culture. Now, after this, then we start getting the Midnight Movie as we kind of know it, the golden age of the Midnight Movie. Uh, There's a lot of debate as to what the first proper Midnight Movie is. Some say that it's as early as 1957 with the Hammer Horror film Curse of Frankenstein. Some say it's Kenneth Anger's Invocation of My Demon Brother which is a movie that has like occult images intercut with live Rolling Stones concert footage. But the widely accepted first midnight movie is, of course, Alejandro Jodorowsky's El Topo. I've actually written partially about El Topo on the iCinema blog in a piece called The Climb to the Holy Mountain, which is more about the Holy Mountain. But El Topo would begin a legendary six-month run at the Elgin Theater beginning December 18th, 1970. Uh, The Elgin Theater itself was a theater that specialized in cult and revival screenings, very much aimed at the hippies in New York at the time, and in a perfect storm style of thing, you have Alejandro Jodorowsky, who's coming out of the panic movement with his partner, Fernando Arabal. He had made a movie called Fondo Elise in 1968, which what the panic movement is, is that it is a theatrical response to the surrealist movement uh, becoming accepted in the mainstream. The intent of it was to shock and provoke people by using the most visceral devices at their disposal. As I point out in my piece, sometimes it included animals being sacrificed on stage, simulated sexual acts uh, with symbolic phalluses, <laughs> and two w- women covered in honey whipping Alejandro Jodorowsky himself. Pondo Elise is a incredible film. I love it. But this is where El Topo is coming out of, which is in itself kind of a response to the spaghetti western as well. It doesn't start with this character who's like this like gunslinging person who's not to be messed with. It's more of a spiritual journey, which is what kind of all of Alejandro Jodorowsky's films are. They're all these kind of like spiritual journeys using symbols and semiotics to convey to an audience that his characters are going on this trip of enlightenment or introspection. Obviously, in the early 70s and late 60s, this would appeal to a countercultural crowd. And so, like I said, this movie had a six-month run. People like John Lennon and his manager would see it multiple times. The crowds would be sold out. And this kind of led to other theaters playing contemporary transgressive films. You had recently, late great Peter Bogdanovich's Targets became a midnight movie mainstay very quickly. Shortly after this, you have John Waters making Pink Flamingos and that becoming a midnight movie staple. You have a lot of uh, erotica and pornography uh, like Dragula and Broken Goddess coming to the midnight movies. And you have rediscovery of like old strange pictures. So this is where Night of the Living Dead like really takes off. This is where Todd Browning's Freaks really takes off. This is where things like Ed Wood's films like Lynn or Glinda and Plan 9 from Outer Space uh, start finding audiences. And you also have this other emerging side of the picture 
where international movies are coming into the forefront with the counterculture. Crime film, The Harder They Come, starring Jimmy Cliff, as well as the legendary soundtrack by Jimmy Cliff. This becomes a mega hit when Roger Corman's New World Pictures picks it up. It plays in theaters, these midnight screenings, and it also is partially responsible for why reggae takes off in the United States around this period. You also have cult hits becoming a thing within the midnight movie. Harold and Maude, most famously. You have David Lynch's Eraserhead in 1978 taking the world by storm. Before that, the grandmother, granddaddy of them all, you have Rocky Horror Picture Show. That opens at the Waverly Theater in Greenwich Village after an underwhelming debut in 1975. This is the midnight movie that begins to establish traditions that uh, we all become aware of with like things like The Room, where it's not as much that you're watching a movie, is that you're going to an event. And this is where I admit that I am still a Rocky Horror Picture Show virgin, as in I have seen the movie. I have never gone to a Rocky Horror Picture Show screening. I live in Bloomington, Indiana. Hard for me to say why this has been the case. Would love to be invited someday. But this is where you have a cast of characters portraying people. There are rituals and traditions. People are throwing things at screens, saying things out loud. And the Rocky Horror Picture Show is to this very day, minus some unfortunate pushback from Disney, if you're in the know with uh, art house programmers, is still running. There are still, you can still go to Rocky Horror Picture Show screenings. Then they're not always at midnight. I find Rocky Horror Picture Show to be especially interesting because establishes this tone with what the midnight movie is, which is it's a place for where queer people, uh, people who feel like they're outsiders, people of color, it's a place, theater kids, <laughs> um, it's a place where you feel like you belong. Sometimes you may be outwardly presenting as someone who is well buttoned up and all, but it gives you a, a kind of a entry into the world that you may have otherwise not sought out in slightly more intimidating spaces like a bars or queer aimed nightclubs or you know within the counterculture of that involves like drugs and things like that this is a little softer than that this is somewhere where you can go and be a little rowdy and kind of find yourself but still feel safe and in control of what you're doing at the end of the night rocky horror picture show also is borrowing from that idea of the the horror host like uh, the movie itself uh, has like a narrator and it has big colorful characters who are kind of guiding you through the action and the the live presentations are no different than that and i'd love someone to correct me on this who've actually been to a rocky horror picture show screening if i'm getting anything wrong but feels of a culmination of what like the midnight movie is it feels vaguely european it's very queer it's very transgressive but it's it feels kind of safe it's very tongue-in-cheek. Obviously, Tim Curry gives an all-time best performance in that movie. And I would say this is probably where the Midnight movie peaks with uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show kind of taking off and becoming this institution. Because in the 1980s, the Midnight movie itself would be kind of become a cult oddity. It would still go on, but like those theaters in New York where, you know, you have a lot of people probably walking off the street to just like watch something stoned or just like a nice place to sleep because it's late at night and there's a movie theater. That kind of disappears. The Midnight Movie is kind of established as a tradition in the 80s. And 
This kind of happens because small art house theaters uh, are being muscled out by video cassettes. You can now just watch this stuff in the privacy of your own home. You don't have to share the shame <laughs> of watching Eraserhead, I guess, <laughs> with a crowd of people. You can do that in the privacy of your domicile. But they still continue on, and many great films come out of that. In 1989, with the release of Tim Burton's Batman, this kind of begins the like the mainstreamification of the midnight movie is what I'll call it. This is where you had movie theaters having, I would assume to have bigger box office grosses, open the theaters Friday, 12.01 a.m. It started with Tim Burton's Batman and progressed to things like Dick Tracy and kind of continued on for the oncoming decades. I would say it probably hit its zenith in the aughts, which is kind of where I come in. And that's when you have kind of circling back to those initial midnight movie screenings uh, in Dallas, you have high schoolers and, you know, people who want to go to something that's an event, like an event coming out to things like Lord of the Rings and the Star Wars prequels and the Matrix sequels. <laughs> I'm saying that I'm being revisionist with that. I don't know how hype people, I, I'm assuming they're probably like great midnight screenings of the Matrix Reloaded. Maybe it's not so much for the Matrix Revolutions, but these big like tentpole movies where people are staying up late, they're getting into character, they're dressing up to circle it back around to things like Rocky Horror Picture Show. And it's becoming this like community thing again. I have very vivid memories of going to see the two Harry Potter final movies, The Deathly Hallows Parts 1 and 2, and everyone was dressed up in wizard regalia. There were uh, costume competitions. I won one because I just wore a dumb suit. And it was just like, a, yeah, I'm just like a normal, uh, I'm a wizard, but he's dressed like a normal guy. He doesn't know how to dress. Um, <laughs> things like that. They're a lot of fun. But sadly, this doesn't last through the 2010s because sadly, there is the Dark Knight Rises shooting in Aurora, uh, where someone brought an automatic weapon to the midnight screening of the Dark Knight Rises. And that kind of signaled the end of the midnight movie, at least the midnight movie in the mainstream. That's when theaters start opening up movies at like 7 p.m. on Thursdays uh, for like the public safety, probably figuring that people are less likely to do things like that uh, a little earlier in the day. I'm sure there's probably other metrics and explanations as to why this becomes a thing. But Midnight movie after that shooting kind of quickly diminishes. The last time I went to a mainstream midnight movie was for Catching Fire, uh, the second Hunger Games movie, uh, in which I stuck a bottle of wine in <laughs> just to have a good time. Once we get past that, the midnight movie is kind of gone. It, it doesn't really exist anymore even amongst the ice cinema, sadly, the and not sadly, it was for employees to be able to get home by midnight just because it's pretty brutal to make someone work until like two or three in the morning on a Friday or Saturday. But yes, the ice cinema for most of its, for about half of its run, had the midnight movie series where I saw so many great things. God, I remember seeing Beyond the Valley of the Dolls there for the first time and just like losing my mind that something like this could exist. And in addition to all the other great screens, I got to see The Holy Mountain on a big screen finally with the midnight movie crowd. And my friends still talk very fondly about things like Cafe Flesh. <laughs> um, but the Not Quite Midnight series at the IU Cinema, I think, is a wonderful tradition that carries on a lot of the things that I've kind of talked about this episode. In this upcoming series of midnight movies, Jennifer's Body, which has 
had this massive reevaluation over the last like 10 plus years. Uh, was underperformed and it became this cult hit. It's also a bisexual text is what some people would call it, but like leaning into that queerness. In addition to this, you have Titan, the uh, Julia DeCarnau film, which has this trans subtext to it. It's a very visceral movie in places and is like very transgressive, very in your face, very much a art house using symbols and not holding your hand through the experience as you watch it. Inspires a lot of humor from people, inspires a lot of strong feelings from people. And then you have Possession, which is this other kind of like massively reevaluated horror film by Andrzej Zulowski, which is a film that he made after like going through like his divorce and the in like the Cold War is raging. And it's just this kind of beautiful, but also unhinged portrait at like a relationship going nuclear and like exploding uh there's themes of like doppelgangers and all this other stuff it's a treat to watch i love possession i'll I'll actually be presenting it at the iu cinema for its screening and then you have crypto zoo by dash shaw and has a all-star cast including lake bell and michael Sarah and zoe kazan uh and peter stormare and grace sabrisky which is a, about crypto zookeepers trying to capture a baku which is a dream-eating hybrid creature of legend and start wondering if they should display these beasts or keep them hidden and unknown. I have not seen this movie yet. I'm very excited about that. But you get that explosive creativity slash like, what am I watching excitement that you get from uh, going to a midnight movie for something that is like completely on a different plane of existence on a complete different other level. And then finally, New York Ninja, which I have spoken about on a my other podcast, Physical Media Isn't Dead, It Just Smells Funny. You can find that in the November episode, I'm pretty sure, if you want to hear more about it before I talk about it more at a later date, uh, hopefully with maybe some people who had involvement in the restoration of this film and restructuring of it. But you have that, like, giddy, oh, this is, you know, obviously not the most well-made movie and some of the enjoyment kind of comes punching down on it. But actually, in the case of New York Ninja, you're more admiring like, a, I can't believe they salvaged this thing and turned it into something that's like special and it's walking that line of irony and sincerity and homage in its own thing. You know, being a movie from the 1980s and they're kind of playing with that, but also not leaning too far into it. It's great. And I would say that is an incredible roster of Midnight movies. If you've never been to one, I would say Not Quite Midnight's is a very accessible, very, very jubilant experience to go to. You know, I've been kind of down at the kind of disappearance of the proper Midnight movie, actually going to see a movie at midnight with a rowdy crowd, which, you know, it's funny. I didn't mention in, in the like the history part of this episode, but like, It feels like Cats 2019 is probably what would have been the last Midnight movie. Midnight movie, in that case, though, got translated to something called Rowdy Screenings, which is what Alamo Drafthouse did for Cats. What seemed pretty obviously, it was kind of become this cult oddity. Something like Not Quite Midnight's, I feel like, carries that on. It's a place where you can be yourself, but like respect others around you and have a good time. Laugh at what you need to laugh at. Be grossed out by what you need to be grossed out by, uh, be amused by what you need to be amused by. It's a place of freedom. And it's why I like the Midnight movie so much. And I hope I see some faces at some of these screenings that are new faces, people who haven't been initiated into the world of the Midnight movie. 
But uh, I hope you have enjoyed this history of the midnight movie on A Place for Film. Uh, I will be back next week where I'll be highlighting the International Art House series in its own special way. So I hope you join me there. I'd like to thank our director, Alicia Cosma, for uh, giving me the idea for this episode, our assistant director, Brittany Friesner, for all the hard work she's done on the Not Quite Midnight series and also shifting it to Not Quite Midnights to give our lovely staff the ability to go home and, or, you know, go out and have a night on a Friday and Saturday. And I'd like to thank Steve Alford and the Rational Discourse for the use of our theme song, Chimney, off of the album Live at the Moth Lights. And yeah, I'd like to thank you, the audience, for sticking with me into another very exciting uh, upcoming year. I'm excited to change some things up on the podcast. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to me ramble on for minutes and minutes and minutes. But this has been A Place for Film. I will see you at the movies. Good night. Good night.